On a humid summer night in 1861, a group of men walked across a patch of Ohio farmland. None of them dared to speak. One man, who we'll call Jim, looked around suspiciously. He was terrified they'd been followed. If he were caught, he would be tried for treason. In the distance, a candle blazed in the window of a small barn. With his hand shaking, Jim pointed to the flame. It was the signal the group had been searching for. They were in the right place. Jim knocked on the barn door once. The door swung open, and in its frame was a large, towering man. On his hip, he patted a shiny silver pistol. Jim leaned in and whispered the password. Soldiers, always lettered except at castle door. The guard nodded and welcomed them inside. The barn was already filled with other guests. Jim recognized some people from his town, including a few wealthy men, local officials, and even the mayor. To see these men present was no surprise. Soon, one of the organization's leaders climbed atop the platform and held up his hands. As a hush fell over the crowd, he then raised his right hand. Everyone else followed. Altogether, the men repeated the oath. Before God and these witnesses, I do vow that I will never reveal the signs, grips, passwords, tokens, or significance of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Thus, the meeting began. And as always, at the top of their agenda was the Secret Society's mission to overthrow the U.S. government. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Knights of the Golden Circle, or the KGC for short. Before and during the American Civil War, this secret organization fought to protect slavery. All the while, the Knights' rituals remained a complete mystery. This time, we'll explore the origins of the group. From 1859 onward, the organization allegedly initiated future Confederate officials, generals, and politicians. Together, they concocted a plan to expand the U.S. borders to include Mexico and much of Central America. As the Civil War began, though, the Knights attempted to overthrow the United States government through force and sometimes assassination. Next time, we'll look into some conspiracy theories surrounding the KGC, like that they buried treasure to fund a second American Civil War, and that the organization attempted to murder Abraham Lincoln multiple times before he took office. We'll also discuss how the group may have actually succeeded in assassinating President Lincoln. 
We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Virginia native George W.L. Bickley had always searched for a way to move up in the world. He often leveraged his good looks and quick wit to get ahead by whatever means necessary. Including bending the truth and marrying up. Though he was trained as a physician, in 1851, he lied in order to earn a professorship at a medical institute. And when it came to finding money for investments, he married into a family of wealthy bankers. However, most of the risky financial schemes Bickley funneled his spouse's money into failed. Yet in 1854, something finally clicked for Bickley. That year, he published a small journal that centered on the concept of manifest destiny, the philosophy that the United States is destined to conquer new lands, even those already occupied by other nations. The publication didn't last long. However, it did solidify one concept in his mind. Not only did the U.S. have the right to expand its borders, it had the responsibility. Before it could seize new territories, though, the country had to settle problems at home. In the 1850s, the United States was more divided than ever. Many people in northern states hoped to abolish slavery, or at least limit it to the territory below the southern borders of Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri. The South was intensely opposed to the idea. White Southerners claimed their agricultural-based economy relied on the exploitation of free enslaved labor. From their perspective, if the U.S. government outlawed the practice, the entire region would crumble. From 1857 to 1859, pro-slavery Democrats held the majority in the United States Congress. But in the 1858 election, the abolitionist Republicans took control of the House of Representatives. Many Southerners believed it was only a matter of time before the government banned slavery. White Southerners needed to find a way to take back power. George Bickley was the unlikely source with a solution. And despite his lack of experience or political standing, Bickley had seen the divide brewing and was sure he could resolve the country's challenges. One night back in 1854, he summoned four of his closest confidants to a meeting in Lexington, Kentucky. He explained he had plans to form a secret society, but he desperately needed their buy-in. In order to protect the institution of slavery, the group needed to expand the United States. Together, they'd raise a southern army to invade Mexico and parts of Central America. Then the organization could claim the land for the United States. This would allow the colonizers to transport thousands of enslaved people from the south to their so-called new land. Referring to their future riches, Bickley said this new empire would be the Golden Circle. His plans didn't stop there. With the land secured, they could annex countries in Central America as new U.S. states. Since the economies of these new territories would rely on enslaved labor, Bickley reasoned that their representatives to Congress would almost certainly be pro-slavery. The dozens of added senators and congressmen would thus swing the ruling majority towards the South. 
If the South added all of these congressional votes, it would be virtually impossible for the North to ensure emancipation, and slavery would be protected forever. Stirred by Bickley's words, the other men agreed to join. They called themselves the Knights of the Golden Circle, or the KGC. While Bickley's pitch undoubtedly stirred something in his compatriots, the truth was he had no political or financial standing, meaning he had no platform to get the word out. For the next four years, the Knights had just a few hundred members, until another secret society gave Bickley the breakthrough he needed, the Order of the Lone Star. Formed in 1851, the OLS shared a lot with the Knights of the Golden Circle. Both groups were formed by pro-slavery militants and supported the practice of filibustering. When you hear the word filibuster now, you may be reminded of the political technique used to block legislation in the U.S. Senate. But in the 1800s, the term referred to the practice of forming a private army to invade a nearby country. Filibustering was illegal in the United States, which local militias seemed completely unconcerned with. It certainly didn't stop them. In fact, it was reportedly a Lone Star's operation in Nicaragua that had first impressed Bickley. In 1855, members of the order helped fund a private invasion when soldiers seized control of the country for two years. Seeing their success, Bickley approached them with his mission around 1858. Immediately finding common ground, the two societies merged, increasing the number of knights to 15,000 men. Almost overnight, the KGC grew to the size of a small army. Word quickly spread across the South. To keep momentum going, Bickley circulated pamphlets and published articles about their expansion ambitions, particularly in Mexico. In the 1850s, Mexico was engaged in its own civil war between its liberal and conservative parties. Bickley was convinced that one of the two sides would eventually ask the Knights for assistance. In exchange, the KGC would demand an American colony in northern Mexico, expanding even further. To recruit members in the U.S., though, Bickley played into Southerners' hunger for war. In one journal, he wrote pejoratively that Mexicans had just about, quote, killed each other. But in his mind, Americans needed to finish the job. Bickley's inflammatory language spurred expansionists to join the society. The mission of the group was enough to bring men flocking to the late-night KGC meetings, which weren't always easy to find or join. The organization's clandestine nature wasn't accidental. For many of these men, the allure of knights was their secrecy. For new recruits, Bickley broke down the structure of the KGC. The society was divided into degrees. The first degree, the lowest, served as the KGC's army. Then came the second level. With more authority than the first, this tier represented the society's financial division. Members of the second degree held the responsibility for raising money to fund the KGC's army. 
To join either tier, Bickley's requirements stipulated that a member be a male between 25 and 50 years old, and most importantly, white. Once KGC leadership deemed these men worthy, initiates performed an oath of allegiance to the Knights. They promised to uphold the values of the society and support the group's Southern ideals. All of this was under the vow of complete secrecy. Yet when the recruits promised to conceal the KGC, the young initiates didn't realize that they too were being kept in the dark. There was also a third degree that few members knew about. This top level governed the entire chapter, so unsurprisingly, the requirements for joining this council were far more strict. Members had to be worshiping Protestant congregates who were either born in a slave state or were active slaveholders. Rumor had it that this tier included wealthy plantation owners and high-ranking government officials, like Senator Jefferson Davis, Secretary of War John Floyd, and even Vice President John Breckinridge. Most of their identities were kept hidden from the rest of the society, though. Like the lower groups, the top level also swore an oath of secrecy. Allegedly, the punishment for violating their vow was death. Despite the different tiers, all knights generally followed the same methods and practices. Upon becoming members, they learned the society's passwords, handshakes, and meeting places. Under the cover of night, members traveled to the local headquarters, which was often a barn, auditorium, or warehouse. Once there, attendees gained entrance through a code. They knocked on the door only once. Then a guard slid open a latch and asked for a countersign. The knight then responded with, Soldiers, always lettered except at castle door. The man at the door acknowledged the signal and allowed them inside. And the codes didn't stop there. Members then walked to the center of the room where a KGC captain met them for final approval. The knight placed their left hand on their heart while raising their right hand. The superior then bowed to them. Finally, the member could join the others. The society went to these lengths to weed out imposters and conceal their true intentions. Some gatherings served merely as pro-slavery rallies, but others were opportunities to discuss more concrete plans. By late 1859, many KGC officials believed the time for idle talk was over. Bickley estimated the Knights of the Golden Circle boasted more than 65,000 members. And with so much manpower at their disposal, they prepared for what would be their largest operation yet, invading Mexico. Coming up, the KGC troops gather in Texas. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers. Global companies with unexpected motives and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. 
I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1859, over 60,000 white men had allegedly joined a secret pro-slavery organization known as the Knights of the Golden Circle. And after years of planning, they were ready to put their plans in motion to invade Mexico and Central America. At the time, Mexico was locked in a civil war between its liberals and conservatives. KGC founder George Bickley hoped the leader of Mexico's Liberal Party would ask the Knights to intercede in the battle. That way, the society could justify its intervention. Some members even hoped to profit off the operation. However, that invitation never came. The leader rejected the Knights' offer of troops. To him, even taking back power wasn't worth being indebted to the United States. And without an invitation, the invasion remained illegal. This meant there was only one other way the KGC could cross into Mexico. Federal authorization. And they sought it from none other than the President of the United States, James Buchanan. Buchanan had his own plans for Mexico. Throughout his presidency, he tried to expand American influence in Mexico and Central America. Eventually, in a speech to Congress in December of 1859, he blamed Mexico's conservative regime for squandering its natural resources, which elated the KGC. Buchanan even asked Congress to authorize United States intervention. The Knights' plan seemed to have worked. Despite the KGC's initial enthusiasm for the announcement, they still needed the Senate's seal of approval. That was a tough weight for some members to stomach, though. For example, Elkanah Greer, the commander of the KGC's Texas regiments, sent letters to the other KGC groups across the country. Rather than wait for congressional approval, he urged them to raise garrisons and send them towards South Texas. The concern may have been that if the Knights waited for the federal government to authorize the attack, the group wouldn't be able to profit from the expedition. If the U.S. military was calling the shots, the likelihood that the KGC would be able to claim territory for themselves plummeted. Since many of the group's upper brass had hoped to acquire land and wealth in Mexico, this fear that the territory would belong solely to the government pushed many of them into action. In his request, Greer urged the KGC to strike as soon as possible. Greer wasn't the only person interested in a Mexican invasion. Texas Governor Sam Houston was also considering an expedition of his own. 
He claimed Mexican bandits regularly plagued his state's border. In his mind, entering the country was justified on the grounds of self-defense. While Houston waited for support from the Buchanan administration, the KGC offered their troops to him as well. Yet even the governor stopped short of giving them the green light. After all, using a private army to invade Mexico was technically illegal. As thousands of knights congregated in South Texas, Houston kept them in limbo. They didn't know if they had his support, and he didn't know if he had President Buchanan's. As the weeks dragged on, Greer reached out to George Bickley for more money and men, and the KGC founder promised to deliver. But after months of waiting, the Texas troops saw little support. Everything seemed to rest on Governor Houston. In the spring of 1860, Houston got his answer. Neither the president nor Congress approved Houston's financial request. His expedition wouldn't be funded. Their reasoning was simple. The United States was on the precipice of a civil war. The Union simply couldn't afford to be waging battles in other countries. Houston fell in line with Buchanan. He informed the Knights that the group didn't have state or federal government backing and ordered them to stand down. Still, some men in the KGC hoped to see out the expedition, despite it seeming like a lost cause, even though their leader, George Bickley, couldn't provide financial backing. Support for Bickley plummeted within the KGC. He'd promised them expansion into Mexico. Now that goal seemed like a distant dream. After the failed effort, George Bickley was pressured to resign from his position in the KGC at a large gathering of Knight's delegates. Instead, he assumed a lower political post within the organization. Bickley's demotion in 1860 meant that the group no longer possessed strong central leadership. Instead, the power was dispersed among its state commanders. With individual states holding the reins of the organization, it didn't take long for their attention to turn to the matter of secession. By 1860, America's divisions had grown exponentially. On one side, abolitionists cried out to end the country's most wretched institution. On the other, the South threatened to secede if an abolitionist won the presidency. The rising tensions made the election of 1860 one of the most consequential in American history. The vote came down to Buchanan's vice president, John Breckinridge, a pro-slavery candidate, versus Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln won 180 electoral college votes to Breckinridge's 72. Yet despite this enormous margin, some people claim that because none of the votes came from the South, the election was fraudulent. In the minds of pro-slavery citizens, Abraham Lincoln wasn't chosen by the entire United States. The northern states alone decided the president. This left southern states outraged and pushed tensions to a boiling point. With Lincoln preparing to enter the White House, many southerners believed it was time to leave the United States, unless something drastic was done. Sure enough, the Knights were ready to hatch a dramatic plan to salvage their own version of the Union. Months before Inauguration Day, 
members of President Buchanan's cabinet, including Vice President John Breckinridge, allegedly set out to change the election results. In the days leading up to the ceremony, the KGC planned to march to Washington and lay Congress under siege. Rifles in hand, they would infiltrate the Capitol building and appoint Vice President Breckinridge as the new President of the United States. With the nation's capital in their possession, the new pro-slavery government could command the U.S. Army and demand recognition from foreign powers. Lincoln would never even come close to becoming president. The Knights appear to have had every intention to carry out their plan, but before they could strike, an informant infiltrated the KGC. In November 1860, he reported the operation to the U.S. military. Military officers worked to resist the insurrectionists planning the coup, but these rebels held tremendous power throughout the administration. When U.S. General Winfield Scott pleaded to bring in additional military reinforcements to protect members of Congress, Secretary of War John Floyd denied his request. According to the informant, Floyd himself was one of the key architects behind the plot. He planned for just 35 Marines to guard the Capitol. For reference, after the Capitol riots on January 6, 2021, 25,000 troops were deployed in Washington, D.C. However, this treasonous sentiment was rife within Washington. Following Lincoln's election, some Southern members of Congress threatened to not count the electoral vote. Rumors about over 1,000 knights marching into Washington on the day of the count spread quickly. In early 1861, a KGC military leader was reportedly staying in Northern Virginia with 500 Texas Rangers. They patiently waited for the perfect moment to strike. As the electoral count drew closer, General Scott circumvented permission from the cabinet. He proceeded to deploy seven companies of soldiers and 24 cannons to Washington. He installed them outside of the Capitol and other key government buildings. On the morning of February 13, 1861, the Senate convened to authorize the electoral count. Throughout the city, KGC members watched and waited. The U.S. military presence was overwhelming. It would take a massive force to defeat the federal troops. It was also a tipping point for states considering secession. In fact, the KGC reached out to the neighboring states of Maryland and Virginia for support. If either state seceded, the Knights could offer immediate reinforcements from their field soldiers. But neither state had made up their minds yet. Unable to take action, the Knights were forced to stay put. And in the end, the mob never had a chance to infiltrate the Capitol. Without any military backing, Southern congressional representatives had no choice but to comply. The electoral vote was authorized by none other than Vice President Breckinridge, the insurrectionists' choice for president. Though the Senate did confirm the vote, the danger wasn't over just yet. KGC members were furious over the failed coup, and in the weeks leading up to Lincoln's inauguration that March, they sought revenge. As he traveled across the North on a speaking tour, he faced multiple assassination attempts, allegedly taken out by the Knights. Despite their plots, 
Lincoln returned to Washington and on March 4, 1861, was inaugurated. The fact that the abolitionist candidate had taken office meant southern states were still preparing to secede, though the process was remarkably disorganized. In the early days of Lincoln's presidency, the Knights had claimed they'd followed the direction of state governors. But when some of those states didn't immediately secede, the KGC grew impatient. They decided to lead the fight themselves. In Texas, KGC leaders pressured Governor Sam Houston into forming a state convention to debate secession. The delegates overwhelmingly favored leaving the union and authorized a public vote to settle the issue. By a reported three-to-one margin, Texas citizens elected to secede in February of 1861. However, the state contained several federal forts which were loyal to the union. This was a problem because without secessionist control of these facilities, the North had a free line of attack. Much like the year before, the KGC once again stepped forward with a plan. They'd overrun the forts and aid in the secession of Texas. Coming up, the KGC troops raid federal outposts. Now, back to the story. In the late 1850s, tens of thousands of Southern men joined a secret pro-slavery organization known as the Knights of the Golden Circle. Most were obsessed with preserving a pro-slavery America and even tried to overturn the electoral votes confirming President Lincoln. It seemed like whenever there was a tipping point, the KGC was prepared to intervene to further its agenda. And as America was on the precipice of civil war, the Knights once again leapt into action. Late one February night, a garrison of Knights led a raid on the outpost in San Antonio, Texas. After a turbulent period, both the public and the state legislature voted in overwhelming support for Texas to leave the Union. The state had just seceded, and capture of the federal fort was essential to the Confederacy's success. So, under the cover of darkness, hundreds of armed members climbed on rooftops and surrounded the soldiers. By the morning, the base's general surrendered. The Texan chapter of the KGC had taken over the federal fort. Across the country, the Knights soon led similar insurrections. That same year, many Virginia delegates voiced opposition to leaving the Union. So hundreds of suspected Knights flooded into Richmond to drum up support for the Confederacy. Within a month, the state voted to join the rebellion. And even as far as San Francisco, high-ranking KGC officials tried to convince California and the surrounding regions to leave the Union. The group hoped these states would form their own separate Pacific Republic. But throughout the war, the West remained split between the Union and Confederacy. Feeling confident that there was loyalty throughout the South, the Knights turned their attention to a new cause, supplying troops for the war effort. KGC founder George Bickley took it upon himself to pursue an unlikely group. He looked beyond southern states for foot soldiers to Kentucky. The state itself remained neutral, yet it still had thousands of Confederate soldiers. And on a broader scale, 
Bickley made an appeal to all Southern members. One month after the bombardment of Fort Sumter, he penned a letter to the organization, which commanded all Southern men to report to high-ranking Knights Generals. He later claimed these orders convinced over 500 KGC members in Kentucky to enlist in the Confederate Army. Bickley's recruitment drive spurred other KGC leaders to pursue more manpower for the South. In states like Texas and Arkansas, high-ranking knights raised entire new units of members. In some cases, these companies even wore different uniforms than the Confederate soldiers. Instead of the gray fatigues, the garrisons donned black pants and matching bright red shirts. They wanted to show that while they supported the Confederacy, they were undeniably loyal to the Golden Circle. Despite their reportedly high numbers of enrollment, the Knights suffered in terms of influence and organization. With so many men enlisted, their in-person gatherings grew dormant. And because their members were off fighting the war, the KGC couldn't exercise any influence in local or state politics. Meanwhile, the North sought to expunge Southern sympathizers from their ranks. Men remaining in the North who opposed abolition and the war were known as Copperheads. Many of these people were said to run active KGC units in states like Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. These chapters did their best to dishearten enthusiasm for the war, which included encouraging draft dodging. However, the Union government soon cracked down on these rogue groups in the courts. Though the KGC likely hadn't anticipated it, the judicial system was coming for them. In August 1862, a federal grand jury in Indiana concluded that the Knights' actions were treasonous. The courts brought up 60 KGC officials on charges of tax evasion and preventing enlistments in the Union Army. Many of them likely spent the rest of the Civil War locked behind bars. Across the Midwest, other states followed Indiana's example. Before the war, the North had apparently tolerated the KGC. But now, the Union needed complete unity behind the war effort. There was no tolerance for the KGC's efforts to stymie that. The Knights were now seen as an enemy at home by Northern states. And soon, members were plagued with relentless investigations and arrests. Between the empty units in the South and the dwindling chapters in the North, the society was losing its manpower and, by default, its influence. And in 1863, the Union struck them a last critical blow, going after the Knights' last relentless leader, George Bickley. During the Civil War, Bickley worked as a surgeon in the Confederate Army. Since he'd renounced his presidential position in the Knights back in 1860, he'd been free to pursue other ventures. In the summer of 1863, he applied for a pass to visit Cincinnati, Ohio. This was required as he'd be passing through Union lines. When he attempted to cross, though, Northern soldiers paused. They were sure they recognized him from somewhere. They just couldn't say where. Erring on the side of caution, Bickley was rerouted to a Union general headquartered in Tennessee. The Northern officer badgered Bickley with questions and accusations. 
He believed the Confederate surgeon had to be the founder of the notorious Knights of the Golden Circle. Bickley suspected the punishment for starting the KGC would be imprisonment or even death. So he lied. Instead, he claimed he was merely the nephew of George Bickley. Still suspicious, the general ordered Bickley to report to General Burnside in Cincinnati for further questioning. Eager to leave the interrogation, he agreed and headed for the train station. When Bickley boarded the train in Tennessee, another man followed him into his cabin. While he watched the KGC founder's every move, Bickley initially wasn't suspicious. A few hours later, Bickley disembarked in Louisville. It was time to heed the general's orders and take another train to Cincinnati. But Bickley resented the Union general who'd interrogated him and wasn't about to derail his trip to potentially disastrous consequences. So he headed towards a different platform. As he walked, though, an uncanny feeling settled over Bickley. Maybe he was being followed. Years in the nights had taught him to be suspicious of everyone. He turned around, scanning the crowds at the station. But there was nothing out of the ordinary, so he bought a ticket to New Albany, Indiana, and boarded the train. The ride was mostly uneventful. Only one other man entered his compartment, a quiet stranger who slumped down and pushed his hat over his eyes to sleep. Bickley didn't think much of it and dozed as the train chugged towards Indiana. Immediately upon arriving in New Albany, Bickley decided to send a telegraph to the local Knights chapter to inform them of his location. But as he made his way to the telegraph office later that day, he heard footsteps behind him. He didn't turn around, but could hear a worrisome pattern. When he stopped, so did the footsteps. Bickley's heart pounded and sweat dripped down his neck. He knew he was being followed. Taking off in a dead sprint, he tried to outrun whoever was tailing him. Yet just moments later, he was tackled from behind. In a split second, his worst fears had come true. He was arrested by Union authorities. When a detective proceeded to search Bickley's luggage, he found Knight's pamphlets, paraphernalia, and letters that confirmed his identity. Almost immediately, the KGC founder was sent to prison. Not only was he incarcerated, Bickley was placed in solitary confinement. The isolation made him grow desperate. Outside of his cell, the KGC chapters were crumbling and the South was losing the war. His life's work was disappearing before his eyes. In Bickley's cell, months passed without a visitor. He craved freedom. With no one else to appeal to, he wrote multiple letters to state and national officials. He even wrote to President Lincoln. The Knights founder begged for his release. He was willing to compromise with the Union. His release in exchange for information and names. He even said he'd command KGC members to vote for Lincoln in the 1864 election. Lincoln refused to listen to Bickley's offers. As far as he was concerned, the founder of the KGC was a dangerous man. Bickley was to remain incarcerated without a trial, no exceptions. Though the loneliness of prison ate away at him, Bickley was adamant he should be freed. 
1865, a few months after the war ended, he penned a letter and sent it to the New York Times. Desperate to say anything that would grant his release, he claimed the KGC no longer supported filibustering, secession, or slavery. He proceeded to order all night's operations to stop immediately. And to the public's great surprise, shortly after the letter's publication, the government, under President Andrew Johnson's administration, released Bickley. The founder had two years of freedom before he died in 1867. For all the attention that Bickley's release garnered, his secret society never resumed operations. Ravaged by Civil War casualties and dispirited by the Confederacy's defeat, the organization disappeared. Yet it's certainly possible that its legacy simply bled into white supremacy groups that exist today, like the Ku Klux Klan and the Proud Boys. Much like the KGC, these racist organizations meet under the cover of night, plotting a return to an old, discriminatory way of life. Next time, we'll discuss a few conspiracy theories surrounding the Knights of the Golden Circle and the Society's brief clandestine and often malicious history. Like conspiracy theory number one, the Knights of the Golden Circle hid gold around the United States, hoping to dig it up later and fund a second civil war. Or conspiracy theory number two, the KGC attempted to assassinate Abraham Lincoln multiple times before he took office, only to be evaded by the president-elect himself. And finally, conspiracy theory number three. The society successfully assassinated Lincoln at Ford's Theater in 1865. For all the ideals they claimed were possible, the Knights never invaded Mexico and failed to lead the South to victory in the Civil War but it's possible they changed the course of history thanks to one of their youngest members, John Wilkes Booth. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Knights of the Golden Circle, amongst the many sources we used, we found David C. Keene's book, Knights of the Golden Circle, Secret Empire, Southern Secession, Civil War, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Bailey and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.